Welcome to Matters of Experience, a podcast that explores the creativity, innovation, and psychology driving designed experiences and encounters. If you're new, a hearty welcome. And to our regular listeners, thanks for tuning in and supporting our conversation. My name is Abigail Honor. And I'm Brenda Cowan. Our guest today really can do it all, balancing design and technology in his work to create captivating and moving experiences. He's had an incredible journey, which seems to only just be beginning as we hear about his latest project. And today, if he's willing, we'll hear about everything from his early acting career to coding to probably one of the most highly anticipated media moments of last year on The Sphere. It's my pleasure to welcome Ed Perver to the show. Hello. What a lovely intro that was. Well, Ed, so you're a creative director and your work really does push the experiential field. You and I have been in contact for a sort of number of years and have always been struck by that sort of ephemeral beauty and fundamental concepts behind what you create. So can you tell our listeners sort of where you first started in media? Because I know you're a young man and I was a young lady and uh, enjoyed your very early work on TV. Ah, <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, way back in the early, mid-1990s when I was at the beginning of my 20s and I really didn't know what to do with my life, I fell into acting. And yeah, I was your, your common or garden actor popping up on TV shows here and there. And I popped up in lots of theatres, some really good theatres around England. I showed up in the West End and then decided to call it a day, really. It was a really fun five years, but I was never that into it. I never really believed in it as a career. I always felt a bit embarrassed to tell people I was an actor. I felt a bit embarrassed by the whole process. And I was much more comfortable hanging out around the kind of the music scene in London and the clubs in the 1990s, which I found much more engaging. And me and my good, good friend, Neil Bennon, who was, had gone to the same acting classes as me and is now a brilliant author who lives in a small island off the coast of Denmark, we were so unconvinced by normal acting that we would find all these other ways to entertain ourselves and we would get onto the London Underground and we would perform acts of generosity. And our whole thesis was that no one should ever know that it wasn't real. As far as everyone else is concerned in that carriage, you're complete strangers. You just got on at different stops. You can't possibly know each other. And so then we would like perform these little scenes you know, I might be sitting there reading a newspaper and Neil would stand near me. And after a while, he just looked sort of sigh. And he said, I'm really tired. <laughs> and he would ask me, would you mind if I sat on your lap? And <laughs> I would like be reading my paper and I would, you know, not respond at first. And you can feel the Britishness, the British like uncomfortableness of everyone around. Wait, these people are breaking the rule. Like strangers are speaking to each other. And I'd, I'd look up at the I'd look up and say, well, where are you getting off? And he'd say, he'd tell me the name of the station. I'd have a look at the map to see how far is that. It's only a few stops. All right, all right, go on then. And he'd sit on my, you know, he'd sit on my lap and he'd read his book and I'd read my paper and we wouldn't speak anymore Mm -hmm. until he got to a stop and he'd say, thank you very much. I'd say, you're welcome. And he'd get off, you know, and I would continue on my way. And we did lots of different kind of scenes like that. It made us feel much more alive than going to rehearsals or showing up to do an episode of whatever TV show where the BBC was doing or something like that. For me, my question is, what were the people doing around you? And is it that you were have always maybe been interested in 
affecting people's emotions and the way they see the world? Because it sounds like mm -hmm. that's as much for you, but I'm sure you will look, you're doing it for a ruse. You know, you're doing it to change the way people act with each other or to just get somebody out of the humdrumness of their day, right? Like, what were some of the things you observed of the people around you when you were doing this? People would burst into laughter. Sometimes people would do their utmost to pretend it wasn't happening. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just being incredibly English about it and just staring fixedly at the floor, six inches in front of their toes and waiting for their stop to come. <laughs> we were very clear about why we were doing it. It was our whole desire was to just drop seeds of generosity into the city of London. And we thought, well, if somebody observes this and they believe it's real, then there is a tiny bit more chance that they might be more generous to somebody else. And so we thought, this is really exciting. There's the possibility that we're actually changing reality. We're actually changing the city. You're making me think about my probably my favorite author of all time, Annie Dillard. And she writes about when she was six or seven and she was living in Pittsburgh. And she, as this young child, used to take pennies which she saw as just incredible treasure. And she would do things like put a penny in a little sort of niche in a tree or in a crack in a sidewalk, and she would take a piece of chalk and draw a long arrow, and she would write, treasure this way. And she would just litter the city with these pennies and these messages. And basically, as I see it, she was creating exhibitions and very much so like what you're talking about. And she would never even wait to see you know, she believed very much so that life was so rich and fulfilling by giving treasures to other people. So from this fabulous, performative self that you were, and as an American, I can assure you, you would probably be met with the same kind of responses in the New York City. You would either get people in the New York City subway who were right, totally ignoring you, um, or sort of nervously laughing, or you would end up with several more people on your lap. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so you, you would definitely get the mix. But let's talk about what brought you to the U.S. It's a big shift for you. And what were you up to when you first arrived? The catalyst was going to Burning Man in the late 90s. Back then, Burning Man was really, really unknown in England. You know, it wasn't the huge sort of globally visible event that it is now. And it was just because a friend of mine had like got caught up in some kind of dot-com venture and she'd gone over to San Francisco. And in between our meetings, someone said, oh, this thing's happening this weekend. She drove out there with her friend. Her friend was so appalled by it, they immediately turned around and left. Her friend refused to stay at Burning Man. She said, I'm not staying here. We are not, 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 not staying here. So my friend Robin came back to London. She told us, oh, there's this really interesting thing that happens in the desert. But I couldn't stay because Joe wouldn't let me. And we were having literally New Year's dinner and we made a pact. All right, this year we will go to this thing. And so we went off to Burning Man that summer. And it was so eye-opening for me to see groups of friends getting together and just making magic happen. That I was like, oh, oh, this is possible. You can do this. And um, it was really radical and exciting to see the installations that people put, were putting up there. And I was like, well, I'm going to leave boring London, and I'm going to go to this place and hang out with those people and see what happens next. So you went to NYU because I'm sort of want to hear more about how you got started to work in software development. So just talk to us about how you transitioned. Yeah, a big change, yeah. wasn't it? A really big shift for you? 
it was a huge, huge shift for me moving from England to California in really exciting ways. Like I could see more blue sky than I'd ever seen before. Having grown up in a very cloudy country, and, and I'm not kidding, that has a massive effect on you. Huge like effect. It had like, yeah, huge yeah, effect. Huge. Like an emotional, physical effect. On the flip side, I felt more frightened and lost than I'd ever felt before. And anyway, while I was there in San Francisco, performance was really all I knew to do. But I hooked up with some very creative people who were much more inspired by Pina Bausch and much more kind of expressive, dance-oriented ways of performing. And we decided that it would be interesting to play with live media within the context of this performance. And so I said, I would do that. And so I started to teach myself just the basic video editing platforms of the day. And actually more useful were VJ software setups that allowed me to put little cameras around the stage and project on lots of surfaces and capture the performers in real time and do real time effects with them. But I, I kind of reached my ceiling of what I could do with those platforms. And I decided I need to figure out how to make my own. And that was why I went to NYU Abbey. So I went there and yeah, I sort of, I went through a really, really important process where I understood that I can learn technical skills, but I'm not a technical person. That is not my value to the team. I am much more of a creative person, but becoming a creative person who understood how to build software, who understood how to speak to a creative coder, became extremely valuable for me in doing all of the, like, the whole next chapter of professional work that came out of that. And that, that's interesting, thinking about how it's informed your process, you know, when you work with developers now. Can you sketch out what happens on, on your projects? Because I know it's often daunting for a lot of people who don't have the coding experience to collaborate with a programmer. Well, first of all, though, I should say very honestly that I am a rubbish coder. But the brilliant thing that I found out was that there's other platforms that exist that allow you to create your own custom software without actually coding. And that's what really helped me understand how to speak in terms of logic and variables and have these really fruitful conversations with people who were coding geniuses. And once I kind of had more success and became a full-time creative leader, ESI Design, we were creating a lot of very large, custom, permanent installations of digital media into the built environment. So, you know, massive lobby installations, beautiful custom screens that integrated into the architecture of the building. And because these were permanent installations that were there every day, that had a repeat audience, I really didn't want to deliver a library of movies. Like, okay, here you go. Here's 30 video files. Because that will be quite boring quite quickly. I thought it was much more rich to conceptualize living systems that could populate these screens. So how I would work is I would work very much as like an interaction designer, diagramming out logic flows. Like here are my inputs. These will affect the media and these are the different outputs I want. So creating quite technical documents for the coder, at the same time creating very creative documents for the client so that I can tell the story about what people will see and what they will feel and why this relates to their building, why this relates to this area and why it's you know, rich and relevant for the people who will see it. 
And then back with Creative Coder, I deliver these quite technical but simple documents. And what they are is their instructions on how to build a tool. That's what I'm asking. I'm not saying Creative Coder, make my work, make the final piece. I'm saying make me a tool. Then you will bring that tool to my workplace and leave it with us. And we will set up a chunk of whatever custom display technology we've dreamed up and we will connect them and we will begin to play. And that's how I got the best results. Because I could sit down instead of having to sort of painfully have long phone calls or in-person meetings saying, can you make it a bit slower? Could you make it a bit more colorful? Oh, could you make it more fluid? What do you mean by fluid? Oh, well, hang on a minute. Let me try and find a reference of what fluid looks like. Just make me a tool with the sufficient parameters for me to sit down and I'll noodle away for hours until I get the looks that I really want. This sounds so logical and so simple and so successful, and yet I can't help but think about all of the clients who really need to understand or need to think about how, if you will, they're getting a puppy that's going to constantly change and grow and evolve and that they need to care for this puppy and that longevity is an enormous factor. And I'm curious, have you ever had any situations where you've had to really work with a client to understand that, you know, they are going to need to think about updating or evolving their new tool, if you will, over time? Well, I clearly didn't sell it well enough to you, Brenda, because this is kind of the beauty of it, mm-hmm. is that they don't have to update it. Fabulous. It evolves by itself. So let me give you a couple of examples so it's not quite so abstract. While I was at ESI, ESI delivered this epic installation in the Wells Fargo Center, which is, I think, the tallest building in in Denver. It's known as the Cash Register Building, designed by Philip Johnson back in the 80s, I believe. And they have this monumental lobby with this massive, massively high atrium and a huge, huge, huge blank stone wall upon which we installed five nearly 30 meter tall strips of LED. And they changed into different states during the day. Now, one of those states was just birds flying. That's all it was. It was just a flock of hundreds of birds flying against the sky. But the wonderful thing is this was not a video. This was real time. And therefore, the birds are constantly changing who's the leader. They're deciding how much they want to flock whether there's wind, whether there's turbulence that changes their flight patterns. The sky is changing its color automatically with the real time of day. Another state that it had, the the same media canvas, was a waterfall. But the waterfall would change its volume of water and intensity based on time of day as well. And we tried to map that with the energy levels of people, like more energy at the start of the day, less energy at the end of the day. And we would take wind data from what's the wind doing out there in Denver. And that waterfall would change the direction of the spray would be changing based on what's the wind doing. You know, the difference is, Brenda, is you're making a place instead of presenting a movie. But it's interesting, though, Ed, because it's very different to maybe some of the video or media pieces that we need to make. These are pieces that don't have a, let's call it a direct narrative, right? It is about creating a mood and an emotion and an environment and bringing a space to life. That's exactly right. 
Like for, and, and you know, we're talking about a very specific context here. You know, we're talking about sort of public spaces, really, or semi-public spaces. And I always try to avoid something that's trying to tell a linear story because there's no way to be sure that you're going to put your audience in front of your story when it begins. You know, people are arriving all the time. And so a linear story has less value because fewer people understand it. I described the birds and the waterfall because they're so simple and easy to understand. But we delivered this other piece and the whole the thesis of the piece or the concept of the piece was the city of Chicago is going to paint pictures of itself. It was a bit of a play on the tendency of these big lobbies to hang an abstract painting behind the security desk because abstract paintings like I don't nobody knows what they are, so there's less chance someone's going to say I don't like that, that's wrong. It's just there. It's just there, right? So we're like, okay, we're going to play with that. And we made this massive, massive canvas. That's what it was called. It's an LED screen, but it had vinyl stretched across a few inches in front of it. So we sent out a local team to record hours and hours of just city movement, just of that neighborhood. So it's just like hours of really boring video. This is literally, literally hours of trains coming past. Look, there's a train going past. I like traffic. It's literally, you are watching traffic. The clouds moving by, the people running the marathon going past the building, boats on the river. So we have this amazing, like, it really, I saw it as data. It's huge, like, data set of movement. And then this genius creative coder, a wonderful artist by the name of Vincent Houzet, he did me the honor of making the tool for me that I could then play with and make all the presets. And so what is the experience? The experience is you might walk through this lobby at any moment, right? You see this monumental canvas up there. And so you might see a boat slowly plowing its way down the river. Is it the Chicago River? I think so. And then slowly, every little bit of movement starts to become a brushstroke. So ripples start to sort of extend themselves and that boat starts to dissolve into painterly sort of swirls of color. And the whole thing slowly morphs into what looks like an abstract painting now. And so there's thousands and thousands of potential compositions. And so what we deliver to them, we can say, client, listen, I'm giving you thousands of hours of content here, like for really cheap. You know, let's talk about the emotional element. It's come up a couple of times as you've been sharing examples and talking about your work. And it's very clear that you create very emotion-rich pieces for people. Tell us more about what this means to you. Like, what does emotion look like for you in your work? And how do you go about nurturing this emotional experience for the intended audience? I think I'll start my answer by telling you about the moment in my life that sort of triggered me on this path of playing with the built environment so much. Because earlier on, you asked me, Brenda, you said it must have been hard to move from England over to San Francisco all of a sudden. And it was, it was. It got so hard at one point that I just, I found it very hard to stay asleep for more than a few hours. I was getting very anxious. Like it had triggered some kind of deep, slightly sort of panic response in me. It's like, oh, you're destroying your life. You don't know what you're doing. You're a failure. That, you know, all of those silly stories that so many of us hear in our heads at some point in our life. And it reached a point that was quite intense. And I had a very, very strong experience when I was in a movie theater by myself. I got halfway through the film and I, I felt this almost like a physical feeling inside my stomach and into my chest, like something rising up. I didn't know what it was, but it was absolutely terrifying. 
And like in an instant, I said, I have to get out of here. I have to leave right now. I got up as quickly as I could and I left the movie theater and going through the lobby towards the door, I knew I had to prevent myself from seeing anything. And I was like, okay, if I could just get to my bicycle, if I can just get to my bicycle and get the key out and unlock the lock and get on my bicycle, I might be able to somehow get home and close the door and everything will be okay. But in that moment of like unlocking my bike, out of the corner of my eye, I caught a glimpse of some buildings and that was it. And I, I turned and I looked and I just observed all of the buildings in flux, like nothing was solid anymore. And it wasn't a hallucination, like I'm on mushrooms and this is very visual. It was kind of very, very deep, like an understanding of the fluidity of everything. And I was like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> you know, uh, that, this is my basic, this is my life over. I'm going to like, <laughs> this, is, this is the end for me. You actually like, sound like my... a theoretical <laughs> physicist. I was going to say they're going to put you in a, a genius laboratory. Well, it's very interesting you say that because my partner who I lived with at the time, when I got home and I was like, all right, so this happened. And she was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> She's like, well, I don't know. I think a lot of people would feel pretty grateful to have the experience that you just had, you know. And, and that was a really, really great response to be around because it sort of didn't allow me to relish my own drama and, and melancholy, but more like, okay, so that was an experience. Um, but it really was strong and it really resonated and sort of echoed within me forever. And this started showing up in my work. So that's why, like, and then I, I talk about this project in Chicago. I was just talking about, what am I doing? I'm kind of like dissolving the city of Chicago into this fluid river of dreaminess. It's like, it's still there. Like they hire me at Sphere. And one of the first things I do is turn it into like this whole rippling blob of fluid, you know? And so my mission, I feel like, is to try to make people more present in wherever they are. Because I am someone who's way too, I'm way too stuck in my head. I think far too much. And whenever I experience something that's surprising enough to wake me up and stop my constant noise and just be in that moment. I'm so grateful. And so when you talk to me about why do I want to create emotional experiences, I think why is because it's the experiences I would like to have myself. And it's what I would like to offer to the world is, is to present. I, I think I like playing with the built arc um, environment so much because I want to suggest possibility. Like we tend to accept the rules of our reality as whatever we saw they were when we were children, maybe. And I like to say, but actually, maybe, maybe wonderful things are possible. Yeah, no, it's absolutely brilliant. And I'm thinking about the sphere. I'm thinking about your large scale work. And I'm thinking about what you were just talking about in terms of mindfulness and being present and enabling people to really experience that and when people experience great scale, like the Grand Canyon, right? When they end this sphere, right? This modern monument, they experience awe. Awe actually stimulates presence and mindfulness and well-being. Like there's these brilliant studies that directly link human well-being and scale and awe. So you've totally achieved that. There's so many things I want to ask you, but I think just thinking about our listeners... Because the sphere was just all over social, and as Brenda mentioned, it's such an already landmark building. When we talked, some of the things creatively, the challenges you were facing are the challenges 
I face on other projects and people hear or listening or face. And so the way that you, you know, dealt with it, it shows a fearlessness and a dedication to what you believe in. And grit. I want our listeners to understand to be able to help them in similar situations. So yeah, can you tell us sort of how you got embroiled with Sphere and how that all came to be and how you reflect back now? Yeah, it happened kind of by accident. And what had happened is I had been head of creative at Coco Lab, which is a brilliant studio in Mexico City. But when the pandemic shut down schools, because we have little kids you know, we got out of cities, you know, we, so we left the city as many, many families did and moved to the countryside where we live now in, in central Mexico. And we like it in the countryside. I didn't want to go back. So I said to Kokolab, listen, I think I'm going to try freelancing, which I'd never really done before. So I just thought to myself, well, who should I write to? And I just sent like two emails to people. I thought, well, I remember you. I'd like to work with you. And so, you know, that was the, you know, the first step in the process. And so it's just an accident. You know, I didn't go hunting for the sphere. But once I got the offer, it was hard to turn down because I knew it would be a momentous project. And what more amazing canvas could you dream for? A seamless sphere, enormous, like floating right there in the middle of a city. I mean, it's kind of a dream, right? So that was how it began. My experience there was a really good example of what happens when you establish your creative concept and your creative strategy clearly, but then you let it go. And so it was a great experience of observing that when it's let go, and it's let go without anyone saying so out loud, it's just sort of quietly let go, right? It quietly dies. And everyone just sort of gently figures out, oh, we're not kind of doing that anymore. And so that's what happened. That's like, you know, it's happened in countless mega projects over the years, you know, a lot of work was put into a strategy that was then discarded a moment of kind of, whoa, so what shall we, let's do everything, let's do everything. And then a sudden kind of directive to pivot at the last minute. But we pivoted quickly and we delivered stuff that was spectacular. And that's what we needed to do. You know, what we did was hugely successful in the end. What the team did was hugely successful. So of course I was there in Vegas the night we turned it on. Actually, I was there a few nights before to do like a supposedly secret test at like four in the morning where we just had to put something on to make sure that things were pointing in the way that we thought they were. So that was kind of cool to be there on the top of a parking garage at four in the morning being like, oh my God, thank you, thank you. It works, it works, it works. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> and then... <laughs> I've been there, I and, know uh, that feeling. Yeah. <laughs> And, and then, you know, uh, less than a week later, maybe being in, in Vegas on July the 4th and watching traffic stop and everyone just getting out of their cars to look at this thing, which actually caused us like, we were like, oh no, we're going to cause a traffic accident. Like we, our, our reaction was like one of like sort of hysterical worry. And I went down because we were looking at it from up high and I went down onto the street and the moon was playing. And that is amazing. Like... There's been lots of shows and I've directed some of them on the sphere that were, you know, had all sorts of effects and illusions and that's really fun. But something as simple as that is when this structure transforms itself to be something you recognize like that, like the moon is floating in the middle of Las Vegas. It is incredible. Mm-hmm. Like even the basketball that I delivered, which was put on a few days after the fireworks show, was also brilliant. 
It's just so simple. It just look, but it looks like it's impo- it looks like the impossible is happening. There's a massive basketball <laughs> rotating in the middle of Las Vegas, and it looks real. It looks real. So that was incredibly satisfying and, and incredibly wonderful to see the built environment get completely transformed. Like it's pretty incredible. Well, as you mentioned, as we've been chatting, that idea of making possibility out of possibilities. Again, it seems to me like the sphere has it's just created another amazing possibility. I just want to thank you, Ed, for coming on today and sharing just a little glimpse into sort of the way that you create. I've just really enjoyed. I feel very inspired. And so I just want to say thank you so much for sharing all of this with us today. And I really would love to have you back. Yeah, if we can have you back, there's so many things that you mentioned that you've talked about and that Abby and I are curious about that have to do with what it's like to work with Ed Perver and what is it like being in a creative team and how does collaboration work? And so if you're game to come back and chat more, we are game too. I would love to. And listen, I mean, thank you for inviting me. It's it's really nice to, you know, to meet you both and it's always nice to be asked about what you do and to be asked about your life. So thank you for listening to my long answers and thank you for being interested. Yeah, thank you so much, Ed. And thanks to everyone who tuned in today. Please subscribe for more episodes of Masters of Experience and make sure to leave a rating and a review and share with a friend. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye, everyone. Matters of Experience is produced by Lorem Ipsum Corp and recorded at Hangar Studios. Tune in next time for more fun discussions about experience design.